Today we're talking about this metaphor in 1 Peter of a holy nation. Scripture does not come to us as a manual, and praise God it doesn't. If it was a how-to with step-by-step things on how to build the church, it would have died with the apostles. Manuals become quickly outdated because they grow out of the culture and the resources and the technology and the worldviews. But Scripture, being the Word of God, gave us an eternal manual on the church by helping us see it through metaphor, through pictures. They transfer into every culture. And this one in particular, holy nation, is very important for us to understand. And we're going to talk about that over the next couple of weeks. We're going to break it down and look at it. Today we're going to focus on that that most popular of words for those of us who think about God in American society and that is the word holy. Let's admit it, we love that word. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we, we come to you. You are holy and you do reign. We, we have often, as we think about your kingdom, thought so much in the future that we forget that right now you're reigning in our lives, that Jesus is Lord, he is Christ, that the kingdom of God is here, and we hold its keys as your church. And as we set out to become a, a new congregation here that impacts the culture to which you've called us in this central Massachusetts region, we know that we need to understand and grasp what it means to be a holy nation. They're they're kind of foreign ideas to us in so many ways. And so, Father, bring them home. Help us to own them. It's possible that we almost fear those terms, certainly intimidated by them. And so, Father, bring them to life. Wash them in grace. Help us to see them in the way that you intended so that we can be your holy nation. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we told the story of uh, Nero, 64 AD, and the burning of Rome, and the blaming of the Christians, which led to the first great persecution that was occurring to the very people who received Peter's letter that we're reading now in 1 Peter. What follows from this period is almost three centuries of nonstop persecution under different emperors, all until the 4th century and a man named Constantine. Most uh, historians of the church see the era that came and was birthed through Constantine as a great boon for Christianity, and in some ways it certainly was but it was both a blessing and a curse. If you don't know the story of Constantine, he was one of many vying for supreme leadership of the Roman Empire, which had been cracked and formed in different groups. And before one of the defining battles, legend tells us that Constantine sees in a vision the sign of the cross. And he is told that if you fight under this sign, you will have victory. It becomes his mark. He takes on the cross, the symbol of Christianity, of Christos. And in that conversion, unites the empire. It is the beginning of what we now refer to as the Holy Roman Empire. Constantine not only legalizes Christianity, 
but converts Rome into Christian. Where there were once pagan temples, he erects churches. He takes what were pagan holidays and brings them into the Christian community by assigning Christian events to those same holidays. And much of our Christian calendar today is rooted in the transition of the Roman pagan calendar to a Christianized calendar where those same holidays were given divine Christian celebrations. And so we owe, in many ways, good or bad, a great deal to Constantine. It was when Christianity was free to be preached and it opened up, as some would argue, a great expansion of Christianity. But we frankly don't know if there were more authentic Christians after Constantine than there were before Constantine. In fact, history would say to us that the true church grows strongest and multiplies more prolifically under persecution than in the daylight. And so we have this interesting phenomenon where Christianity suddenly becomes the thing. So eventually to be Roman was to become Christian. The head of the church becomes the head of the empire. And this is where our ideas of Christianity take a serious wrong turn. Because instead of Christianity, what actually is birthed, and we're still experiencing the remnants of it today, is this phenomenon of Western culture, which we call Christendom. It's hard for us to separate those two ideas, Christendom and Christianity. But Christendom is the nationalizing of Christian religion into something that is a cultural norm. That's Christendom. Here's what happened that was the wrong term. At some point, the kingdom of man, which was the Roman Empire in its day, simply was given a new name. It was now called the kingdom of God. But at its core, it never changed. And when that happened, we lost our perspective. When Christianity became something that justified the earthly kingdoms of man, it becomes evil. And the greatest atrocities in the name of Christ have happened not by authentic Christians, but by proponents, by those who led Christendom, who thought of it as an earthly kingdom to be expanded through men's might, men's violence, men's hatred, men's power, through human bloodshed, forgetting that the church is birthed through only the bloodshed of Christ. You following what I'm saying? So we are now 1,700 years into the era of Christendom. Now we hear this certain phrase that comes out a lot, and it also scares people, and that's the phrase, postmodern or the phrase post-Christian. So both of those are something that's happening right now in our culture and in the whole Western culture. What's happening is the modern era, which was birthed out of the age of reason, 
which was just another man's kingdom, but it was a man's kingdom of the mind, not of politics. That age is coming to an end because we no longer believe that through reason alone we can solve all the world's answers. We've, we've figured that out. The next generation that's come up is actually more spiritual than many generations before it because they are less driven by what we think of as the scientific method or by the Socratic logic system in order to decide what's true or not. They're willing to believe that there are things that are true even if they're not reasonable even if they're not verifiable. See, Somewhere along the line, Christianity got hijacked by reason, and the baby boomers are the last great generation to somehow turn faith into debate and discussion and convincing arguments. And so all we're ever willing to believe is what we can find reasonable and be convinced of. And so, therefore, we've lost the notion of being a true people of faith, which believes in the unseen, believes in the greater, believes in more than I can see, or we can hear, or we can even imagine, which is anything we can figure out or reason. See? So we're coming past that. Many people think that's a horrible thought. Well, in some ways, it takes some adjustment, for sure. We are also becoming post-Christian. Now, if we thought of Christendom and the true Church of Christ as one and the same, we would find that to be a startling fact. We would see the church as in the decline because we see culture slowly moving out from under the bonds of Christendom. Now that Christianity is no longer the empire, society is declaring that we are no longer Christian. We are post-Christian. Here's my argument. Christendom may have claimed Christ, may have set up a, a set of laws based on what the Bible in some way teaches. And so in that sense, it may have reflected what is the church of God, but Christendom was never Christianity. And so the fact that Christendom is losing its strength it's really a whole separate question to what's really happening in the church of God. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So even though we sit in an era where we believe Christianity is on the decline because we see a shrinking of Christianity's influence over culture, and in some ways there's truth to that, by faith, we believe that Jesus is building his church. He continues to build his church. The only reason we are here is because he's still building his church. And we have to learn to see the church that Jesus is building, not the kingdom that men are building and then trying to put Jesus' name on. I didn't actually plan to talk about all that. I kind of got off on a little rant there. Sorry about that. Didn't realize how strongly I felt about that. The point is, when we confuse the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God, Christianity becomes an evil thing. And history proves that, does it not? We have justified bigotry, murder, brutality, euthanasia, genocide, the Crusades, even Nazism is rooted in an idea of nationalistic Christianity that is really the perversion because it's the kingdom of man. See, that's what is fading away. I like to think that could be a good thing.
I like to think we have the opportunity of experiencing what it means to be in an era where we no longer take for granted that the laws of the land are going to be on our side. And we really have to understand what Jesus meant when he said, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross. You see, it's really possible, if we're glass half full kind of people, that we see the possibility of the church beginning to show itself as the real church. Those are kind of strong statements. <laughs> but they're rooted in recapturing an idea of what it means to be a nation. But not an earthly nation ruled by men, but a heavenly nation ruled by God. That's who the church really is. It's who it always was. We get to be a part of recapturing that in this era. So I don't believe we are post-Christian. I think we're post-Christendom. And there's opportunities there to represent the real Christ. So let's seize them. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read again, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Picture yourself as the diaspora to which Peter is writing where the only empire they have known is an empire of man that is seeking their destruction. They are dispersed, they are meeting and hiding, and Peter says to them, you are a holy nation. You're a people, you're part of something that is eternal. And no earthly empire or emperor can take that away from you. What does it mean to be a holy nation? This week we're going to actually look at the idea of holy. And then next week we're going to look at the idea of nation. Nation has to do with seeing ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God. Holy is the quality, the primary characteristic of what it means to be that people of God. That word is hard. I mean, when most of us think holy, if, if you were raised like I was, in a very devout, loving Christian home, but primarily rooted in a fundamentalist, legalistic idea, holiness to you meant towing the line. It meant following the list of things. We had in our hymn book, in the back, what we called the church covenant. And the church covenant was all the things we were not doing together. 
We weren't smoking, we weren't going to movies, we weren't drinking, we weren't dancing, we weren't having any fun at all. <laughs> because we saw those acts themselves as somehow innately unholy. And so holiness meant, I just don't do those things. What that conjures for us is more of an Old Testament idea of holiness, right? Holding up to the standard, keeping the rules. What we've learned under Paul's teaching in Romans is that trying to keep the rules never got us anywhere. The only thing we found out by trying to be holy by keeping the rules was that we couldn't do it. Right? When non-Christian people think of the church and they hear the word holy, I think for most of them that's what they think of, is us having this whole list that we're measuring people by. Are you doing this? Are you not doing this? Do you measure up? If you do, you're holy. If you don't, you're unholy. That's Old Covenant. Holiness in the New Covenant is not that. We've already reviewed that the word holy means primarily what? Do you remember? Yes, set apart. What does it mean to be set apart? It really has two directions. We are set apart to God. Set apart for sacred purposes. So holiness, first of all, is about my having value and purpose to God. And my wanting to devote myself wholeheartedly to that. It's about value. It's about eternal worth and purpose. So I'm set apart to God. It also means being set apart from what Scripture refers to as the world. Often we confuse the world with the culture. We think of the world as, you know, the top 40, the current styles, whatever people are listening to musically, that's the world, and we're not supposed to have anything to do with it. The world in Scripture is the kingdom of self. Wherever self reigns and God doesn't reign, that's the kingdom of this world. Right? So it's really not about culture. It's about selfishness. And does selfishness appear in all cultures? Sure. Are there places and activities that can be used predominantly for selfishness and therefore evil? Yes. But does that mean the tools themselves? The culture is the problem. No, it's the hearts of men. When we are to be separated from the world, it's, it's to mean that we are to be distinct from what drives men. Because we're set apart to God, we don't live under self. We think in terms of the spiritual conflict between good and evil being a conflict, of course, between God and Satan. And that's definitely a true focus. But we are in a battle as well. And our battle is the kingdom of God, the divine authority of God in our life, and the kingdom of man, which is the divine authority of self. So holiness is, by God's initiation, calling us out, setting us apart to himself. But then holiness is also the lifestyle on our part. Let's look at what Peter means by that, by looking back to chapter 1. I want to pick up at verse 13. This is a, a very important set of ideas what I'm going to share here with you because my goal is that we will be liberated from the idea of holiness as a duty, as something that we have to measure up to and therefore are most likely to fail at. And to see holiness as a life journey to which we're called. Let's read what Peter holds out to us as a holy life. Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. 
Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. That's Leviticus 11. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, that, that passage is a whole 12-week series right there. But I want you to capture some very important components to this because the first place our mind goes is all the do's, right? Do's and don'ts. But there's a context here and this is the important difference to what it means to aspire to holiness under the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, holiness was a religious activity. It grew out of religion, rules, and standards, and it was doomed to fail. That was God's purpose for it, was to show us that religion can't make us right with God. Holiness under the New Covenant is not about religion. It's about relationship. What's the primary picture of relationship with God that we see in this passage about living holy? Who is he referred to as? And who are we referred to as? He is our Father. We are His children. Notice that He has a distinction between the Father who we are spiritual children of, and our forefathers, who he refers to in this passage, who are our earthly fathers. And for these people who were pagans largely, the forefathers were those that brought them down a path of religious effort that brought them only the awareness of their death. See, that's the life they formerly lived. That's what it says. There are a couple of very important phrases here that help us understand some important doctrines of the Christian faith. First of all, holiness in the New Covenant is family business. It's a matter of family honor and tradition than it is religious obligation. 
And that's why the word born again shows up in this passage and help us, helps us understand that metaphor for spiritual life. We have physical birth and we all get certain traditions from that and certain realities. Some of us raised in a Christian home also came to know Christ through, through our families. Many of us didn't. So we have that path, but then there is the family of God that we are born into through the new birth. So when Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you're a religious leader of the Jews. You have been espousing and following intently and helping others follow the religion of faith. Hasn't gotten you anywhere. Because what you need is to be born again. Now we get confused by that because we think that's some sort of a mystical experience. No, it's metaphor for being birthed into God's family. He goes on in John 3 and says, That which is born of water is water. That's physical birth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So new birth, which is referred to again here by Peter, is the process of just like we were born into an earthly family, of being born by the coming of the Holy Spirit into our lives into the family of God. So we're children of God. So the best way to describe our ambition for holiness is described by the little kid who's in that stage when his daddy can't do anything wrong. And when people say to him, what do you want to be when you grow up? His answer is, when I grow up, I want to be just like my daddy. That is the call for holiness. It's a family thing. That's what he's speaking of here. Listen to it again now. Verse 14. As obedient children, live your lives in this way. And then he goes on and says, And since you call on a father who judges each man, impartially live your lives as strangers in reverent fear on this earth. But he, he's describing children in relation to a father who they want to honor. And they want to make him proud. See, that's the image here. With every family, if, it, if it's a family that's healthy, there's a certain sense of healthy identity as being a member of that family. Even though I look back and realize there was legalism to my upbringing, make no mistake, I was loved, cherished, I was showed Jesus, and I was proud to be a Sparling. I loved being a Sparling growing up. My dad was a good man, respected and loved by many. My mom was a nurturer. And we weren't her only kids. She had kids in every college we ever went to who called her mom and, you know, youth group kids. I was proud to be a Sparling. When, I, when we showed up places, people would go, oh, you're, you're Dick Sparling's kid. Uh, I was so proud of that. My son Tommy, I think he used to be proud of that. Where's Tommy's here? Uh, we have, uh, I have these great memories. You know, there was an era when uh, God kind of blessed some of us are in the room who were part of that period, Bob. And, and Mike, uh, where we had the privilege of leading large numbers of people in New England in worship. At Congress, for instance, uh, um, 9,000. Those were fantastic times. You know what my son did during those periods? When we were up on stage and people kind of knew my name in those events, Tommy got a kick out of taking my name tag and putting it on and wearing it around the conference center. It was gold. And he was younger. He was, well, how old were you back then? 14, maybe? 13? He'd walk around like this and kind of 
And people would go, oh, Tom Sparling, are you? And then they'd look at his face and go, are you his son? And yep. <laughs> yep. I used to use my kids for all sorts of illustrations. And at, um, at Tommy's youth group, a, a, a dad who was in ministry with a, another kid in the youth group uh, used his son as a story, walked up, gave him a dollar bill. And he explained that he has a deal with his kids. Every time he uses them as an illustration, he pays them a dollar. So he turned to my son and said, I'll bet you if you had that deal with your dad, you'd be rich by now. Tommy's answer was, well, the way I see it, my dad uses me as an illustration. He gets a good story. I get free publicity. <laughs> That's my son. When you're in a healthy scenario, there's an there's a identity that's bigger than self. You know, we so emphasize the individual in our culture, and in some ways we have to because families are falling apart all around us. But we were designed to have an identity that's bigger than ourselves, both socially, in family, but even bigger in the family of God. So there's a pride factor, see? So to be a sparling when I was growing up meant something. And it just carried with it some assumptions as to how I was going to conduct myself. And you know what? I had no problem conducting myself well in those settings. Because I wanted to make the family name honored. It wasn't like I sat there and said, oh, I'm going to have to sit here and be good. I'm going to have to be polite to people. I'm going to have to be clean. Oh, I've got to wear a suit. I never even thought about those things. I didn't even think of them as expectations. I knew that I just, you know, the, I was proud to be part of the family. And this is what it was like. See, that's holiness in the family of God. Think about that. We don't strive for holiness to find acceptability to God. That's not what he means by him judging us. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The law of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That was the old law. That was the old idea of holiness. There's no condemnation now. Holiness is not a standard to which we aspire for our own good and to have eternal life. Holiness we aspire. Why? Well, I think he says it here. In order that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. We want to make daddy proud. Things that when we're living for self seem to be a great burden seem to be something that we resist, every part of us resists. When we identify ourselves as a part of this great, noble family of God, we say, I, I want to be like Daddy. You see, the word holy in Scripture is the primary descriptive for God. Did you know that? What word do we like to think is the primary descriptive for God? Love. Love. Is God love? Of course He is. But he's not just love. You can't define God by a single emotion or character. And the one that is used most commonly in Scripture to describe God, the one he chooses most often to describe himself, is the word holy. I'm set apart. I'm other. And that's a good thing. Think about this. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of heaven. It opens up, the throne of God comes down, and creatures have been created by God. And they do nothing else but surround the throne of God and over and over sing a song about how great God is. And what is it they're singing? Who knows? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. All right, good. I can't wait to hear verse 2. What's verse 2? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, wait a minute. How about omnipotence, omniscience, all love? What about all that stuff? Unchangeability, immutability? Well, those are all good, but holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the primary. It's so important to God that he created beings that John sees centuries later in the book of Revelation when he is brought up into heaven and he sees the throne and there are those very same creatures and what are they singing? Oh, they did finally get around to verse 2. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. See, we have to start looking at holiness as what is most glorious of God. He is other. The more we try to make God like us, he becomes diminished and unholy. He himself is set apart. He lives in glorious and radiant light. When we speak of God's holiness, we're not speaking of God's standards. We're speaking of God's perfect goodness. And as his children, he calls us and says, not only, not only am I looking for that in you, because part of the family, I have empowered you to live that. And that's the Holy Spirit. So we don't do this out of condemnation. We do it out of love. We had kind of a traditional household growing up. I was out working. Vid had the privilege and thinks of it as that, of being able to be home. We made choices to make that possible. And we actually homeschooled the kids for much of their upbringing. You can see how badly that turned out for all of them, can't you? They're just They're so misadjusted people. They're great kids. And I have these great memories of, um, I, I just knew that what would happen is about a half hour before I was on the way home, Vit would say, Dad's coming, Dad's coming. Everybody would kind of get ready. They'd clean up the house. And the kids had, had turned our driveway into this chalk world. That was my favorite part about coming home, is that every day the world they created in chalk was different. Remember some of those chalk, chalk things, Bob, when you came to visit? It was always different every day. Their imagination was bigger than our little 1,100-square-foot lot, you know. Their world was bigger. But they couldn't wait for me to come home. And I'd come home, and sometimes they'd just be lined up. Dad's coming. Dad's coming. What's he going to think? Well, of course, what does God think? What does any dad think of his kids who just love him fully? He's delighted. See, there, there's a, that's the idea of reverent fear for our Heavenly Father. It's not terror. It's respect for who he is. And an expectation that he's coming. He's coming. We can't wait. He's going to come. He's going to see what we've done. He's going to love us because there's no condemnation. See, we are aspire for holiness. is not out of fear in the Old Testament sense. It's out of reverence, respect, love. It's out of unconditional acceptance of Abba. I want you to feel free from the idea of having to leave holiness outside of your conversation because it's something you can't ever attain. 
I want you to become free from the idea of separating out holiness from your concepts of God and replacing love as though it excuses our moral brokenness. I want you to see holiness as something that just is birthed out of us and is part of a journey. We don't suddenly act perfectly. We never will act perfectly. But we grow and journey in holiness. And we become more like Dad as we grow. We grow up to be like Daddy. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, I just really thank you for this truth. It's um, precious. It's, it's something that we want to get our, our, our hearts around and embrace as a privilege, as a divine state. Um, we, ex we hear the word and it's like the 80-pound gorilla in the Christian church because we really want to talk love and acceptance and, and okayness. And holiness seems to be in the way of that. But that's our hang-up about the phrase. Because we see it as judgment and failing. Help us to see it, Father, as pure goodness. As something we've been birthed into by the precious and costly work of Christ. And a privilege that we get to be about as we live in a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.